Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Good morning. I'm Liz Peake, and it is my great honor to be hosting this, the first hour of Larry Kudlow's weekly radio show here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. For all you listeners disappointed that Larry is not on today, I apologize. But I have to say, Larry deserves a vacation. He's one of the hardest working and most successful guys I know in this business. He just turned 75, and I hope he'll take a few days to celebrate. So today, we're going to have a great show. In this next hour, I'll be talking to John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital and founder of the Kilduff Group about the next Biden crisis about to overtake our country, a looming energy crisis. We've had the Biden border crisis, the inflation crisis, the baby formula crisis, and now an energy crisis. It didn't have to be this way. Already there are some 20 million Americans behind on their utility bills. The worst is yet to come, and a lot of the blame lies on the ideologues driving policy in the Joe Biden White House. We'll get John's take on the looming natural gas shortage and what it means for you, the consumer. Next up, we'll talk with Leora Levy, the Republican candidate who won the primary battle to face off against Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal in November. Many of you probably don't know Leora. She's an American first warrior and first-time politician. I can't wait to hear how she'll try to eject the noxious and profoundly dishonest Blumenthal from his seat. Finally, we'll visit with Nicole Maliotakis, who represents New York's 11th District in Congress, covering much of Staten Island and southern Brooklyn. Nicole is a fierce fighter against the woke big government policies of the Joe Biden White House and will face off against Max Rose again in November. She beat Max to win her seat in 2019, and I'm confident she's going to do it again. I especially want to talk to Nicole about the priorities for the GOP if they take over the House in November. I'm focusing on policies and candidates of importance in the midterm contest because I, like 74% of all Americans, think our country is headed in the wrong direction. From the humanitarian disaster at our southern border, where some 2 million people are expected to enter our country illegally just this year, to rampant crime in Democrat-led cities like New York, to the rising cost of living, which is squeezing hardworking Americans, to out-of-control spending, which will make inflation even worse. It is hard to find much that is going right in Joe Biden's America. And here's the scary part. He's only been in office for 19 months. We have 29 whole months to go. If that doesn't make you break out in hives, I don't know what will. Democrats are cheery these days because they've landed on a surefire way to combat national disgust over the policies and dishonesty of the Joe Biden White House. That secret sauce? Spend more taxpayer money on favored constituencies and watch the polling climb. Under Biden, we've had the Democrat-only $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which even some Democrat economists agree lit the flames of inflation, the bipartisan $1.1 trillion infrastructure bill, the $240 billion CHIPS bill, 
which is supposed to boost our semiconductor industry, but which dedicates only about $50 billion of that $240 billion to that end. And then we have the Democrat-only Inflation Reduction Act, which will ladle out over $350 billion in green energy boondoggles, will not reduce inflation, and will likely not bring down the deficit either. The Inflation Reduction Act contains yet more smoke and mirrors accounting to pretend it will not boost our deficits and debts. And Democrats say that is why it will reduce inflation. Oddly, they still maintain that the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, not a penny of which was paid for, did not cause inflation. I guess some deficits are better than others. Anyway, everyone is aware of the latest gambit from the White House for giving student loans which will cost, according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, not the $300 billion promised by the White House, but instead closer to $500 billion. This at a time when the Federal Reserve has just yesterday reaffirmed its intention to jack up interest rates aggressively in order to squash inflation. With almost half the country saying that rising prices has hurt their standard of living, this is when the White House, with no approval from Congress, is going to throw another half trillion dollars into the economy. It is reckless and probably illegal. I'm sure this plan will be challenged in court. The courts have smacked down several of Biden's more grandiose plans over the last year and a half. Hopefully, they'll do so again. Among those programs nixed in the courts were the EPA's planned elimination of fossil fuels from our power industries and OSHA's effort to force large companies to require their employees to get vaccinated. The courts told Joe Biden no and called it executive overreach. Executive overreach, by the way, is the sign of an ineffective White House, one that can't get laws passed by Congress. Remember how Biden promised to work across the aisle? That was one of his many advantages, that his relationships in Congress would allow him to get bipartisan legislation done. That turned out to be just another election year lie. Even fawning news outlets like the Washington Post have admitted that Biden personally had almost nothing to do with passing his signature bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Anyway, the student loan forgiveness plan is yet another brazen vote-buying effort by the White House. A recent Economist poll showed only 20% of those surveyed want Biden to run again in 2024, including only 18% of adults age 18 to 29 and only 18% of Hispanics, both groups expected to be prime beneficiaries of the loan bailout plan. Biden's plan is coming in from some harsh criticism from all sides. Even some Democrats oppose the move because it will increase our deficit and inflation. Economists like Obama advisors Larry Summers and Jason Furman oppose the measure. Furman tweeted, pouring roughly half a trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning is reckless. The New York Post reported this morning that Democrat Representative Chris Pappas, who faces a tough re-election race in New Hampshire, criticized Biden's move, saying it, quote, sidesteps Congress and our oversight and fiscal responsibilities. Democrats are also criticizing the bill because a good segment of the population will find it extremely unfair. Unfair, for example, to the vast majority, 62% of Americans who are not college graduates. 
also unfair to those parents and students who have worked like crazy to pay off their student loans. Ron DeSantis hit that note when he said, as only he could, it's very unfair to have a truck driver have to pay back a loan for someone that got a Ph.D. in gender studies. Now, who can argue with that? A Penn Wharton analysis showed that about 70% of the debt being forgiven is held by families in the top 60% of the income distribution ladder. Another study showed that people living in Washington, D.C. have the highest per capita student loans of any place in the U.S. So Biden's generosity goes primarily to higher income elites in our nation's capital. Call me crazy, but that does not seem a winning political position. The GOP is going to roll out ads mocking Biden's student loan plan as a bailout for rich kids. One ad features a waitress, a mechanic, and a landscaper, that sounds like the lead into a joke, talking about working extra shifts to help theater majors get out of debt. It's aimed at blue-collar workers in swing states like Ohio, where Democrat Representative Tim Ryan is running for the Senate seat being vacated by Bob Portman against Republican J.D. Vance. Ryan says the bailout plan sends, quote, the wrong message to Americans having a hard time paying their bills. I think he's right. But I also think that the student loan move is another sign that Democrats have abandoned middle-class America. It's like the Inflation Reduction Act, which spends $300 billion-plus combating climate change. Is that really the top priority of blue-collar Americans? I don't think so. I want to add one more thing. Axios reported this morning that Biden's Education Department is completely unprepared to roll out this program. The Education Department doesn't have income data for most of the 43 million Americans eligible for forgiveness. In other words, 35 million Americans will have to submit this information in order to get their loans repaid. Meanwhile, reminding us of the Obamacare rollout, the studentaid.gov website crashed after the announcement, unprepared to deal with a surge in interest. The White House hasn't released yet the website where people can apply. So far, this program is not going well. It's been under-researched and under-prepared by the Biden White House, which does not surprise me at all. In a few minutes, I'll be talking with an expert on energy who can explain to us why Biden promised to double our exports of natural gas through LNG exports to our allies in Western Europe to help them with their mounting energy costs, but never conferred with the industry executives who might actually make that happen. Biden is unprepared, he's not serious, and once again, his policies make almost no sense at all to the average American. Thank you for joining me this morning. I hope to uh, hear from you. I'm at Twitter at Liz Peak, uh, and I would be happy to uh, ask the, our guests any questions that you might have. So please feel free to tweet me over the next uh, remaining minutes, and I will be very interested in what you have to say. Thanks so much, and now we will take a short break before coming back to talk about natural gas. Thank you. 
Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. We're back. Uh, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, Liz Peak hosting today for Larry, who is on vacation. Uh, welcome to all of you, and welcome now to John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital and founder of the Kilduff Group. Uh, we are going to talk, John, about energy, about natural gas in particular, uh, where prices are soaring. And I want to get John's take, obviously, on just the general uh, projection of energy prices. We heard yesterday from the Fed uh, that the rate of inflation is cooling a little bit. That's very encouraging. But we all know that energy is the big uh, element here and unpredictable and a wild card in terms of where we go next. So, John, welcome so much to the show. And thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join uh, Larry Kudlow's show today. Um, so let me just throw this into your lap. As I say, it looked yesterday, the PCE number came in a little bit cooler than expected, which was good news. Uh, energy in particular has been uh, favorable over the last many weeks. Gasoline prices coming down, inflation cooling a little bit. Where do you see us going generally on oil prices over the next several months? And maybe more importantly, uh, as we shift to looking at the winter heating, heating season, what are your thoughts about the natural gas market? Well, great to be uh, on with you, Liz. Thank you so much. Um, I guess to put it, the best way to put this is that uh, consumers here in the U.S. have been incredibly lucky uh, over the past several months. Uh, a big scare uh, was thrown into the energy market, the crude oil market, uh, natural gas market to a lesser degree, uh, due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there were tremendous fears in the market. <clears throat> Some of the big investment banks, in, in fact, you know, trumpeted this, that there would be significant uh, amounts of Russian crude oil loss to the global market. So far, that hasn't happened. Uh, the Russians have stepped up sales in a big way with big discounts to China and India in particular, and supplies from uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq in particular were pushed away as a result and gone to other markets. So the whole thing is, is balancing out to a degree. But I can't emphasize enough just how incredibly vulnerable we are uh, to, to several factors. Uh, first of all, that Russian oil at some point could indeed still come off the market. Uh, also, too, um, we are in the height of the hurricane season where U.S. Uh, oil impact uh, could be ter terrific and, and great. Uh, also, too, uh, we're going to lose the steady stream of uh, strategic petroleum reserve mm -hmm. barrels uh, at likely in October because uh, we're just just about tapping out that uh, that situation. So those are the things that will uh, help push prices uh, back up. Uh, also, too, you heard noises from Saudi Arabia and others within the OPEC uh, cartel that uh, they are looking at this oil price softness that we've currently been experiencing. Uh, and looking to uh, potentially cut production. So once again, the Saudis, you know, being our, our, our good friends, helping <laughs> us out here. So, Even though Joe Biden went over to visit them and, and uh, you know, had a, a wonderful fist bump. Let, let me go to the SPR drawdown, that million barrels a day, which I guess hasn't has been a little um, more erratic than that. But anyway, as you say, it certainly has helped the supply and demand balance. Uh, 
it, it, do you expect that Biden will re-up for another uh, few months or that he can continue to do that? What do you think is the impact of further drawdowns in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Well, they've been very much needed. Uh, you know, we get a weekly inventory report from the uh, Energy Administration, uh, and the, the, the SPR has covered a multitude of sins, if you will. We would have had huge crude oil drawdowns uh, out of the commercial inventories if it wasn't for the SPR. Uh, look, it, it, it's, it's again, I just talked about us being vulnerable uh, to supply shocks and also to pressure from, from OPEC if they were to, to cut output. Uh, you know, we're, we're ripping through our savings here, if you will. And so it's getting to a point where at the lowest levels in the SPR since the mid-1980s, uh, and it's getting a little uncomfortable for, for folks like me who've been watching this over the years to see that drawdown. Uh, so, and again, it's going to probably have to go away by necessity, the, the, the tapping of it. And uh, that is going to be a, a chunk, a, a, a price rise that uh, we're all going to be staring down again. It's probably good at this point. Uh, you know, if they were to end it, uh, I would expect at least a three to five dollar rise in the price of a barrel Whoa. of oil, if not more. I, I don't know that people are expecting that. I'm not sure that consumers are expecting that. And and I don't know. It, you know, as you say, it, it's supposed to uh, end probably in October, right before the election. I can't imagine that the Joe Biden White House is going to agree to that. That would be like uh, just adding flame, you know, fuel to the fire of concerns over inflation, gasoline being the number one product that everybody looks at. Um, I guess the question will be, you know, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, was meant to be an emergency backup resource. It is being used in a different context today, is being used as something helpful politically, uh, but also just sort of helpful in moderating prices. I guess the question is, I think you're right. I mean, the, the, it's the lowest that's been in 35 years or something, right? Um, the question is, how low is too low? I mean, uh, you know, could Biden get away with another month or two of a million dollar, a million barrels a day? Or does that really put us into dangerous territory? I believe he could, but again, the the, the discomfort uh, that's going to be there for us uh, if there was to be a real supply shock, yeah. Um, and again, a loss of Russian barrels, it's going to be uh, not good, not good. You you will see this market reprice uh, and incorporate that new newfound risk again rapidly. And it's like you said, it's a bad time of year because what you're seeing now, we've seen prices rebound somewhat because it's the run up to the to the big season now, the winter season. Uh, the fears of uh, an angst get priced in now, uh, worrying that by now beat the rush is what I like to say uh, ahead of the winter because right. we, if, if supplies appear to be short at all. Uh, these again, the prices will will skyrocket as we're seeing. So, so let's talk about that because we're talking about the winter heating season, and that really means natural gas for over half of America's households. Natural gas prices are more, I think, they're more than double right now, uh, or at least about double what they were a year ago. Has that impact fully been felt by consumers, or is that something we're going to be looking down the barrel of again going into the winter heating months? No, it hasn't been felt by consumers uh, just yet, uh, partly because natural gas is obviously supplied to you through your local utility, and those are, are tariffed rates, and uh, there's going to be big eye-popping rate hikes coming uh, our, to consumers uh, down the road here as the utilities you know, make their filings. So there's a delayed reaction, not unlike what you're hearing about in Europe, 
uh, where they reprice on an annual basis. And the, the numbers are just staggering in the UK and, and other European countries in terms of w- where the price cap is going for consumers. So, um, and I'll tell you this, it's, a, it's an odd sort of thing that you have to think about, but to the extent natural gas gets increasingly expensive, like it is, especially in Europe, people do what we call fuel switching. So rather than burning natural gas, if they're able to, they're going to burn diesel fuel or other heating fuels. So that's how this thing finds its way back into raising crude oil prices and other energy prices as natural gas skyrockets. So I have a little bone to pick with President Biden um, promising our allies that we were going to double our LNG exports. Uh, It turns out, according to the New York Times, that he had not conferred with industry leaders, uh, the people actually had to make that happen. Uh, And there isn't really any capacity to double our LNG exports. And by the way, what was the plan for helping out American consumers in that scenario? Uh, You know, can you shed some light here on what was he thinking? Well, you know, and sometimes when you're caught in a bad trade, we call it hopeful analysis. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that's what the president was sort of engaging in here, because there is absolutely no way we can double our capacity anytime soon. Uh, if you ever so- see a picture of an, of an LNG ship, you can get some appreciation for just the scale uh, of these operations. Uh, I've been to a, a couple of these facilities, and uh, I liken them to uh, they're as big as Madison Square Garden in terms of where the natural gas uh, flows into, gets processed, and gets shipped back out. Keep in mind, you're taking natural gas, super, super cooling it uh, into a liquid form and putting it on a ship, sending it someplace else to a receiving facility where it's got to get reheated. I mean, it's just an unbelievable process, and uh, this is a long time lag. So there's there's really nothing that can be done. And to the extent that um, we are going to step up our LNG exports, you know, we need to get on the wall here with more – pipeline capacity. Thank you. Yes. We're starting to, it is reaching the point where it is starting to push prices up just on its own here domestically for our our natural gas prices. Well, that, I think that is something that consumers are not aware of. Um, I went back and reminded myself that Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uh, canceled a very important pipeline to New England, I think back in 2014, the result of which was this past winter that New England, talk about fuel switching, we're going back to oil and coal because there is no ability to, to increase the capacity of natural gas. And what's so stupid about this is natural gas is a relatively clean fuel. This is why America's emissions have been going down is the switch from coal to natural gas. So I, I really uh, I, I find this very foolish and I, I don't see any turnaround in the works. I'm not sure that I think consumers are have been told that we can do this switching away from fossil fuels with no cost involved. It's not true. But I have to say, this winter's uh, natural gas bills may may make people think twice about not only building pipelines, but also fracking. I mean, New York is still a non-fracking state. And I wonder at some point whether a politician running for office in New York might use that as an issue because, you know, there's a lot of money flowing into Pennsylvania and Ohio and other states from natural gas development, but moreover, we need the natural gas development. And New York is a non-fracking state with tremendous resources, particularly in the southern tier where it's a very uh, impoverished area. 
Um, so it's 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 a very sad development. Uh, I I like to you know recently here in the lower New York area we built a new bridge it's called the Tappan Zee Bridge, and I like to point out to people that we didn't shut down the old one until we finished building the new <laughs> one. Very good analogy. Very good analogy. And we're running out of time, John. I I, I want to just again say thank you so much for joining us, and uh, this has been super helpful. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Liz. Good to be with you. Enjoy and your to you. Thanks. Stay tuned. We're coming back in just a few minutes, and we'll be talking to Leora Levy, uh, running for office in Connecticut. Welcome back. This is the second segment of the Larry Kudlow Show. We are going to be talking to Leora Levy, who won the Republican primary in the state of Connecticut to match up against Richard Blumenthal, uh, one of the least popular (laughs) Democrat senators as far as Republicans are concerned. Uh, Leora, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Welcome to the show, and congratulations on your win. I gather it was pretty decisive, beating out uh, your rival, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Timus Clarides, by 10 points. That's pretty decisive. How'd you do it? I did it by being consistent with my message and presenting the Republican voters a clear contrast. So I, you are I, you are you were Trump uh, endorsed, right? Yes, I was endorsed by President Trump. And but and I'm, does I'm Leora Lee, I'm running. I'm the one on the ballot. Uh, President Trump and I agree strongly on policy, but I'm Leora Levy. Got it. Um, how is the Trump brand in Connecticut? I think uh, how many points did he lose Connecticut by in 2020? Do you remember? Was pretty decisive, uh, right? It, it was decisive, but this is 2022, and the president who's on the ballot in 2022 is Joe Biden. It's his policies that are failing Connecticut families, making life unaffordable here. Well, I so, agree with that 100 percent. What? And so, sorry, sorry. As you travel the state uh, and you try to convince voters first of all, to come out, because I gather the turnout in the primary was only about 21 percent of Republicans, very low, which, by the way, is not so unusual. Unfortunately, these days in blue states, Republicans seem to have kind of given up. But what are the messages? What are the issues that they want to talk to you about? What what gives you some optimism that you can actually beat an incumbent in a blue state this year? Well, the issues that are driving the election in Connecticut are the ones that are driving it nationally. Most of all, it is the economy. The record high inflation, as I said, is making life unaffordable for all Connecticut families. Everyone goes to the gas station. Everybody goes to the grocery store. Parents have to make tough decisions. How do do I fill my tank? Do I feed my family? How am I going to afford the school supplies now that school is starting? How how am I going to afford to heat my home when the weather gets cold here in the Northeast? This is a very difficult time, and all of these problems and these choices are created by the failed economic policies of the Biden administration rubber stamped by Dick Blumenthal. Yeah, it sounds like Blumenthal's approval ratings have gone down pretty much in tandem with President Biden's, I guess, slipping under 50 percent. I mean, that's that's optimistic, right? And it gives you a little uh, bit more of a of a, a wind behind you. Absolutely. 
his approval, his reelect is something like 41% right now. Wow. 41, 47, 41 to reelect, 47% to, to, to vote for somebody else. And I am the person that gives the clearest contrast to Dick Blumenthal. I am nobody's rubber stamp. I, I am not a career politician. He is a career politician in office for, for 37 years. And I call myself a career American. <laughs> That's a pretty good line. And 37 years seems to be really quite long enough. What what does the funding look like, both for yourself and your rival? Uh, where is your money coming from? Where's his money coming from? Look, he has had a long time to build up a war chest. He has over $8 million in his war chest. My my donors are coming from all over the country, but, you know, heavily centered in Connecticut because the Connecticut voters, the Connecticut donors un- understand it's important to take advantage of, of the opportunity we have. But I do I said I would nationalize this race when I got into the race last February. And that is exactly what I have done. And and what's the National Republican Senatorial Committee done, doing for you? Are they helping you at all? Yes, they are. In fact, they're featuring me in a fundraiser down in Florida next month, and they also uh, we have a a a joint fundraising agreement so that uh, we can raise money jointly. And I am, you know, I am doing that. So yes, they are helping me tremendously. That's uh, very encouraging they, because they're not helping everybody, is my impression. So, uh, in in terms of uh, going back to the issues. Uh, inflation in the economy is always a very important thing. How are you dealing with the abortion issue? Because certainly in New York State, where I live, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, this is a big deal. And, uh, you know, just as New Yorkers kind of felt like maybe there was a chance for Republicans to come on pretty strong this fall and make some headway after many years of sort of being in the outs, um, the Roe v. Wade decision came down and seemed to energize voters in uh, in New York. How about in Connecticut? What's the situation there? Hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you again. There was a gap. But okay. Look, the Democrats would like nothing better than to make this election about abortion. It is not about abortion. In Connecticut, the laws are set. There's nothing that I would do as a senator that will change the laws in Connecticut. And the Dobbs decision was a good decision in that it sent that issue back to the states where it belongs. It it is not a constitutional issue. It's not in our constitutional, but it is up to the states to decide. And what works in Connecticut is not what works in Mississippi. So, you know, I am running because parents are concerned about the children they have, the fact that that they can't afford to provide for their children the way they would like to provide for their children, the way they have been providing for their children. The fact that the government is interfering between parents and their children by teaching things like critical critical race theory and inappropriate sexual curriculum in the schools, by by telling parents that they're not in charge of their children's medical care, telling children not to not to speak to confide in their parents if they have concerns. This this is unacceptable. I am a mother. I raised three 
sons here in Connecticut, if anybody had told me that I could not be involved with their education or their medical care, they would have had a lot more than a tiger mom to deal with. (laughs) Those are the issues that parents are concerned about. They're concerned about the children they have. Right on. And I would say one of the hopeful things, Larry Kudlow actually talked about this on his TV show the other day with myself and Mercedes Schlapp. One of the good things that came out of the primaries uh, and recent elections in various states around the country is parents fighting back and taking control of local school boards. That has got to be a very potent issue everywhere and including Connecticut. Certainly Glenn Youngkin found it to be a very potent issue in Virginia, Uh, which basically led to his surprise win uh, to become governor of that state. Do you think that's something that you can really tap into? And do you have any particular um, strategies for uh, approaching parents on these issues of unions taking uh, too much control of our schools, school boards not being uh, in league with, with what the wishes of the parents are, et cetera? What are you telling people about this? Well, this is an issue here in Connecticut, and and everywhere I go, parents are expressing their concern about this. The school board elections throughout Connecticut last November were very contentious, and it is because parents saw what was happening, what was being taught to their children. It was the COVID lockdowns and the closing of the schools that, that really showed parents what was being taught to their children, uh, more so than the primaries. And if you could say there's a silver lining, that was it. And and again, as a parent, I will always stand for parental rights. You know, I was born in Havana, Cuba. We escaped Castro and a communist revolution. And, And one of the first things that Castro did was to start to indoctrinate the children, to indoctrinate them to spy and inform on their parents, and to replace the parents in their minds, he became the father figure. Well, that is what we're seeing now with these big, you know, socialist efforts that my opponent, Dick Blumenthal, supports to, for the government to take control of the children. They are not the government's children. They are our children. And parents are are in control and have the right to make decisions for their children's education and their children's medical care. Well, I think that is an incredibly strong message. And I hope you do get that out because I think parents everywhere are looking for relief. They're looking for better education for their kids and they are sick to death of being told that it's really important to indoctrinate our kids on so many things that they don't want their kids to be told about at a very young age. Leora, before we sign off, we just have a few seconds left. Are you going to be speaking in the New York area anytime soon, or where can people find you? Well, first of all, they can go to my website. Okay. It's leora4ct.com. And I would appreciate that. You know, as I, as I said, Dick Blumenthal has over $8 million, and he has a very wealthy um, in-laws, and they write the checks that they need, whatever they want. I'm raising money from donors all over the country, and I would appreciate any support that people could offer to me. But, you know, I will be – I'm hoping to speak at the Monday meeting in oh, New good. York. Okay. I've been in touch with them about, about that, and we're trying to work it out. I do speak all over the state of Connecticut, and uh, yeah, I will be everywhere this weekend. All right. Um, well, keep, 
there. And, and I just want to let you know that it's not just Republicans who are supporting me. I have very broad-based support among Republicans, independents, unaffiliated, and even Democrats. I, that's, I have that's great. And I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, Leora. But we, I wish you all the best and lots of luck, okay? Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you for inviting me. It was our pleasure. Stay tuned, everyone. Coming up next, Nicole Maliotakis, running in New York State. Thank you. So welcome back uh, to Larry Kudlow's show. We are now delighted to have a conversation with Nicole Maliotakis, who is the brave person running as a Republican in New York State in the 11th District. She is a representative representing that district now, uh, but having to come back and fight for her seat again against the person she beat in 2019, Max Rose. Nicole, how are you doing? It's great to be with you. Thank you. All is well. Um, I am very interested on your take uh, on the primaries that were held in New York State uh, and New York City, and what do we read into them? Do you have any kind of insights into what voters were telling us uh, from these races that were already held, including the special election, which unfortunately was won by a Democrat? Yeah, well, look, I I think that uh, it was low turnout. People were not used to voting in August. Uh, They already had a primary in June for governor and uh, another state office, and people were just not used to voting in a second primary. The reason we had the August date to begin with is because Democrats in Albany tried to horrifically gerrymander the districts, including mine, to give themselves an advantage in November's election. We fought back. We won. uh, We got fair maps. Uh, preserving the integrity of our election system, and, uh, and and now people will be able to vote in November. It was unfortunate that uh, a lot of people were away and whatnot uh, during the August uh, primary, but I do believe that uh, people are energized. Republicans and independents and common-sense Democrats are energized to see um, some of the issues that we're facing nationally be addressed, right? And I'm talking about the border crisis. I'm talking about crime skyrocketing in America's cities. I'm talking about making sure our education system focuses on the things that children should be learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic, uh, making sure we bring down inflation, that we ramp up domestic energy production to lower the gas prices and the food costs. Those are the things that I think at the end of the day people will be voting uh, for in November. And if that's the case and they want to see those issues addressed, they should be voting Republican to bring a balance to our federal level. I, I gather that one of the things that happened, at, you're talking about low turnout, and certainly was that, is that independents really didn't come out be, because, of course, independents aren't involved in primaries. But in that special election, that probably drove down turnout amongst a group that might be might be trending re- pretty Republican, particularly upstate. What do you think about that? I, I agree with you. As a matter of fact, uh, speaking with my constituents, there were a lot of Democrats who said they wanted to vote for me, uh, but they stayed home on primary day because uh, somebody like Max Rose, who marched in front of the local precinct with those uh, holding signs that said defund the police, is not pe- not somebody who speaks to them right now, or somebody who was in Washington and voted 97% of the time with Nancy Pelosi, uh, or who, you know, after he lost, went to go work for Joe Biden and pushed his agenda. Um, So I think you're right. There are a lot of independents and blanks at the end of the day that really, really determine the outcome of these races. And I think they are trending Republican, again, because they just want common sense. They just want border security, public safety. Uh, They want inflation to be under control, and they want to make sure that uh, they can afford to live in America. 
So, Nicole, I think one of the things that the Republican leadership has failed to do is to present voters with a clear picture of what the GOP will do if they take over the House and or the Senate. And obviously you're in the House, so let's focus on that for a moment. I think people need to know why elect Republicans in twenty in the uh, in November elections, what are the Republicans going to do? Because I think there's a concern that they're going to spend a lot of time looking backwards, that they're going to be investigating the FBI and investigating this group and that. People want answers to the problems that you have just talked about. So what do you think uh, the leadership in the House needs to do, needs to tell people to confirm the fact that we need balance. You know, this is supposed to be a a system of checks and balances, and right now we really don't have that. What can the Republicans promise voters that they will do to provide a check on this White House? Yeah, well, you know, Leader McCarthy has set us up in different task forces, and over the past year we've been doing roundtables, we've been doing with experts, and coming up with recommendations of actual policy. Um, I'm on the American Security Task Force, and on that committee, we've come up with you know, policy discuss- decisions that we want to implement uh, should we take power, uh, and it has to do with you know, re- reinstating Remain in Mexico, making sure that um, we, uh, we complete the barriers at our southern border, that we provide more funding and training and equipment to the Customs and Border Protections, that we go after the drug cartels and stop them um, from... from uh, pouring fentanyl into our country that is killing our children. Um, But also we talk about the need to support our law enforcement, give them the tools. So, for example, New York's radical bail law. You know, there's not much I can do other than use my bully pulpit to speak out against this radical bail law that needs to be fixed because it's the number one cause of skyrocketing crime, and yet our governor refuses to fix it. But the one thing I can do is introduce a bill, and I have done that, that would uh, require states to allow a judges to use discretion to consider dangerousness. Every state but New York does this. It's common sense. If someone has repeat uh, history, they are career criminal. We know they pose a danger to somebody else. Why on earth would you release them back onto the streets? So my bill would address that um, and, and you know, can't get passed under Nancy Pelosi because they don't support those types of common sense policies. But under Leader McCarthy, I believe the bill will. And that's the distinction. Um, you, you saw how dismantled our country has become, crisis after crisis under one-party Democrat rule. We need a balance, as you say. Uh, here in New York, we know what it's like to live under one-party Democrat rule. It's ugly. Uh, and that's why people are fleeing our city and state in droves. But we need to have a balance because that's where you're going to get common-sense policy. You know, right now the pendulum has swung so much to the left. Uh, so, so our task forces have done the work. We have the ideas. We're going to be releasing it uh, in, in shortly, actually, uh, and I think people will see a stark contrast. Some of it's going to be just undoing what this administration has done, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Some of it's going to be uh, more creative ideas uh, that add to addressing these issues. I, I think it sounds great. I hope that whoever's involved in messaging can boil these ideas down into some very pithy, repeatable, I don't talk about sloganeering, but just you know, things that voters can kind of latch on to, because these are really important issues and the Democrats are absolutely ignoring them. So I think there is so much scope for uh, rebuttal and improvement on these policies coming out of the White House, which brings me to the next issue. You mentioned funding. That's, of course, Congress's main power is that they have the power of the purse. And yet here comes Biden giving away 300, maybe as much as 600 billion dollars 
in student loan relief uh, kind of out of the blue. What is your take on this? What is I mean, do you think your constituents are in favor of this or are they furious about it? What's what's your sort of immediate take on this? No, I, I think my constituents, as many Americans are, are very upset with this. You know, the majority of Americans do not have college debt. So why are they responsible now for paying the debt of others? Uh, some of them chose to go to vocational schools instead of college. Uh, some of them decided to work and, and, and then pay off their school at that time. Uh, well, you know, people make life choices and they need to be responsible for their life choices. I think it's not a good fiscal policy, but also... What, is, what does it say to future generations? Um, people cannot be expecting to be bailed out uh, of their own life choices. As uh, somebody made very clear, a constituent who went up to Elizabeth Warren and said, you know, my neighbor chose to go on vacation and buy a nice car and you know, spend their money. I chose to sacrifice and pay off my student debt. Uh, there's a difference there. And, and we, people need to understand that they have to be responsible for their choices. Um, you know, in my case, for example, you know, my father worked two jobs. I worked part time all throughout college. Afterwards, I worked full time so I can go to school at night and receive my MBA. Um, you know, why should I or anyone else in that similar situation or the guy who's uh, a blue collar worker who's, you know, earning 60, 60 grand a, a day? Why do they have to pay for someone else's college education? Yeah, I, I would think this is a pretty strong issue in a place like Staten Island. Am I wrong? Well, I, 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 based on the people that I'm speaking with, they're very upset about this. And you know what? This is not the first time this issue has come before us. In, yeah. in the state legislature, uh, they actually passed legislation to allow for those who are in the country illegally to qualify for tuition assistance at taxpayer expense. So here you have a family, let's say, who earns over 125000 They have to put three kids through college. They can't afford to do so. They don't qualify for tuition assistance. But yet somebody who's in the country illegally uh, who did not have to show you know, uh, the financial uh, disclosures uh, that are required by American citizens are receiving tuition assistance. So it's a very unfair uh, situation. But I think this is going back to what you said. Congress does have the power of the purse. And if we take back the House... We will have more leverage. Right now, they pass everything they want to because they don't need Republican votes, right? right. But yep. even so, people should know, and they should be hopeful, right? We Look, even though we're in the minority, we passed their attempt to use taxpayer money to fund political campaigns, okay? We, we, we stopped their attempt to pack the Supreme Court. We stopped their attempt uh, to pass that $5 trillion uh, disaster by you know, exposing it, getting the American people on our side, and then putting... Uh, those moderate Democrats in a in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, that that we want. We have a lot more leverage. We we want to see them in a very uncomfortable position. Pretty soon, we want to see them in the minority. Uh, Nicole, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, this is Larry Kudlow Show, WABC and Seven Seven Radio. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay. Thank you. Great to be with you. Take care. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Well, I wish it were Larry Kudlow, but you are stuck with me, David Bonson, for the next hour. It's a great privilege to be sitting in for my pal, 
Larry. I've been a guest on the show many, many times, uh, but now today I'm going to sit in Larry's seat, so to speak, for the next hour and uh, really looking forward to being with you. Lots to say, lots going on in the in the markets, in the economy. Uh, lots happening in that kind of crazy uh, uh, path between Washington, D.C. and markets. We're going to talk about some of that as well. Um, just real briefly, I said my name is David Bonson. I run a private wealth management firm called the Bonson Group. I've been blessed to know Larry uh, for many years now, consider him one of my dearest friends, uh, mentor, advisor, and to be totally honest, a hero. Absolutely adore him and grateful for everything he has done. Uh, always love being on this show. And one of the reasons is we have a chance to talk about markets in an objective way, talk about politics, to be happy warriors together. Uh, th there's a lot this week that you could say uh, could make somebody unhappy, some frustrating things in policy, uh, some challenging things in market. But uh, those things are not going to get us down today because we're going to work through them rationally and figure out where we go from here. Let me start with the thing that uh, I believe challenges my happiness the most these days as a market watcher. Um, I never mind market volatility. It's part of the, the life I chose. Um, but I will tell you this, the obsession, uh, the central role that the Federal Reserve has uh, taken on in the economy, the sort of deification that we as a society so often do, looking to them as if they have this kind of godlike capability to manage the economy. The notion that one man's speech on one day in one place, and I refer, of course, to Fed Chair Jerome Powell yesterday in Jackson Hole, that it would be just so incredibly important to the economic affairs of our country, it bothers me. Now, some could say, does it bother you that people think it's so important? Or does it bother you that it is so important? And I guess the answer to that is yes. Um, I don't believe people get it right in terms of how important the matters of the Fed really are. I think we overrate the significance of the aspects that they can control. And I don't mean to what could happen in the stock market on a given day. Certainly the Fed has plenty of input and the way financial speculators might run things up or run things down. They, uh, even beyond speculators, they can have a big control in cost of capital, and that's obviously a huge input in how assets are priced and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think people are right to believe that the way in which we fundamentally and ultimately view economic health should start or end with the Fed. I think that those of us who believe in free enterprise, uh, those of us who believe that the greatest path to prosperity is indeed through a market economy, something Larry has been saying for many, many years, um, that we ignore what ultimately drives economic activity, which of course is free humans operating to meet the needs of humanity with their own self-interest at play as well, that there is a creativity, there is an innovation, there is a productive spirit embedded in mankind, and really wonderful things happen when we remove impediments to mankind producing. So the supply of goods and services drives economic activity, earnings 
ultimately, you know, profits, as Larry calls them, the mother's milk of the market. The, the, these things ultimately drive greater results in economy, creating more wealth and prosperity for more people. And, of course, the Fed's going to have an impact in the way a lot of these things go with liquidity and with money supply and with cost of capital. But you ultimately need humans to be incentivized to go produce. And the reality is that the Fed is overrated in how that process works. I also am frustrated, not just by the perception of the Fed, but the fact that there is now a role for the Fed uh, that is accepted very often, really quite frequently by people on the right, certainly by people on the left. And there used to be this idea that it was Wall Street, it was the media, it was the Beltway. But I even think sometimes it's too often Main Street that is looking for the Fed to kind of fix problems. Like, okay, well, we're having a little economic slowdown, so what kind of magic potion can you throw on this that's going to solve everything? And, of course, the reality is when things get a little tough, sometimes you have minor economic slowdown in the ebb and flow of the way uh, an economy works. There are things the Fed can do to produce a sugar high. It's just that then you have to come off of it. And the more of a sugar high we look for, the harder it's going to be to come off of it, and the more entrenched our dependency on those things gets. And we've been living through a moment like this for a good portion of my adult life. I think this is really, in a lot of ways, the legacy of Alan Greenspan, and most certainly his predecessors carried it on, excuse me, his successors carried it on, that there is this notion that the Fed needs to try to keep the good times going and solve for anything that could be slowing down jobs at all times, but also solve for things that could damage asset markets. And so where we find ourselves right now is the Fed. Uh, I'm not even talking about inflation right now. I'm not talking about consumer prices being higher because I'm not even convinced that the biggest cause of that was a low interest rate. I just, we had low interest rates for seven, eight years. Well, first of all, we had zero interest rates seven or eight years after the financial crisis. But it stayed very, very low all the way through. We've had 15 years of very low rates Inflation really jumped up, you know, in the last year and a half or so. What I would argue is that the biggest input we have had to deal with out of the Fed, the biggest result, is the idea that we are entitled to low cost of capital forever. So housing uh, market has become completely dependent on very low rates. Um, and in the stock market, there has been way too much focus on people just saying, look, we can borrow so low and just kind of leverage up investing in other assets that we basically know are doing well. And we'll generate our return by taking advantage of a low cost of capital that the Fed's given us, as opposed to going out and producing new things, producing new goods and services, being incentivized to go out and create wealth and and I think the Fed has sort of facilitated in its effort to supposedly paper over problems in the economy the Fed has essentially um, created a dependency on what it's doing that has allowed a lot of economic growth to metastasize and that's why you've dealt with subpar suboptimal well below trend economic growth now ever since the financial crisis.
when Larry Kudlow was in Ronald Reagan's White House, you had a recession near the beginning of Reagan's term that then resulted in a recovery, and that recovery was for the history books. Now, of course, you had massive reduction in marginal tax rates. You had deregulation. You had American energy independence, not that we achieved independence then, but you pursued greater role for American energy producers. And uh, the, the kind of trifecta of supply-side policy there resulted in the greatest recovery that we had seen post-war. And even if you don't look to that extraordinary example of the way all economic recovery ought to look like, real GDP growth at 5, 6, 7 percent, not 0, 1, or 2 percent, even if you don't look at that as the standard um, averaging all of the post-war recoveries, we generally have gotten, if not 6, 7, 4 or 5. Yet out of the financial crisis, with the Fed doing the most it's ever done in history to facilitate economic recovery, we were sitting there somewhere around one and a half to two percent. And I believe a big part of the reason is the diminishing return that you just the Fed keeps pouring support and pouring stimulus and just cannot continue to go. The sugar high gets less and less robust, and yet at some point the piper has to be paid. And now here we are in a moment where the Fed is trying to normalize and the financial markets say, well, wait a second, we don't know what to do. Do I really care if the Fed funds rate is at three or three and a half percent? I prefer it. I don't want a zero percent Fed funds rate that distorts markets, that totally uh, alters our ability to adjudicate what an investment might really be worth. I don't think it is healthy for an economy to be dependent on emergency measures all the time. When you're constantly in an emergency state of mind, it's really hard to act as if things are normal. It hurts sentiment. It hurts optimism. It hurts growth and prosperity to be in emergency provisions all the time. And so you say, well, why would the market then be going down at the concept of a 3 to 3.5% three Fed funds rate? The market's volatility is because of the uncertainty the Fed's created. Will it come right back down? Will they rate? Will they uh, hike rates more? Nobody knows. It isn't so much what the Fed's doing. It's the instability that is created, that instability that comes from such a high deified role of the Fed in the economy. So that bothers me. And then you get into a moment like yesterday, I just want to make a couple comments about, uh, you know, certainly the Dow did end up dropping 1,000 points. There was an acceleration of selling in the final hour. That is generally the case going into a weekend. But let me tell you the stat of the market yesterday that should be most telling to you. Before any part of his transcript, any part of Powell's speech, before the markets were really awake, the 10-year bond yield yesterday was at 3.03%. When Powell was done, the Dow was done, Friday was done, and we were over with markets for the weekend, the 10-year bond yield was at 3.03%. The two-year, exact same story, 3.38 before, 3.38 after. That inversion of the yield curve was 35 basis points. That was the case before and after. 
So Powell's speech had such a profound impact on markets that it caused the bond market, which is actually pricing these things that Powell is most directly talking about, future growth, future inflation expectations, future rates, rate hikes, rate hike expectations, all these things, it moved it not a whit. And yet, of course, equity markets uh, sold off. Perhaps the selling off had a lot more to do with traders guessing on what other traders would be doing as opposed to the fundamentals of what it means to have a Fed funds rate going higher, which I have to think every man, woman, and child in the country knew was the case before Powell ever spoke. So the Jackson Hole speech definitely had an impact on stock market. Uh, the Dow, by the way, was down a little over 4% on the week. The NASDAQ was down 4.5% on the week, but is down almost 8% since its August 15th high, so not even two weeks ago. The NASDAQ's down close to 8%. Both Dow and NASDAQ still way up from where they were at their June bottoms. But the final thing I want to say about the markets before we kind of wrap up this monologue is that energy was up on the week. The XLE, the kind of index fund for the U.S. energy sector, started the week near $79 a share, ended near 83 My favorite little uh, uh, barometer of the pipeline space, the oil and gas pipelines, which I think have such an important role to play for how we grow U.S. energy infrastructure, how we get ready to export liquefied natural gas to Europe and Asia and other exciting growth opportunities that we ought to be doing and need the Biden administration to get out of the way, need a regulatory environment that doesn't try to keep this from happening. But UMI, uh, a kind of index for the midstream energy sector, started the week in the low 35s, ended in the mid 35s, and that's in a week where the markets were down 4 or 5%. So energy has continued to be kind of a contrarian side to what's going on. You have energy prices going higher. Profits are good in the midstream and upstream sector. And yet we continue to find ourselves um, dealing with all this uncertainty in the broad market and in the real speculative uh, kind of, you know, higher valuation areas, I think frothier parts of the market in the NASDAQ and in the tech space, they, they continue to be quite vulnerable. At one point, of course, we're, we're off more than 30% from highs. They're still down today over 20%. And, and so we see where things go. We'll, we'll dig into some of the details of those things with some of the guests we're going to be bringing on here over the next hour. Um, but I think that what we have really got to wrap our arms around is that the Fed uh, has taken on too big of a role in the American economy. And the bigger the role the Fed has and the bigger the role that Washington, D.C. has, the um, less role that private industry has, that private markets, the private sector, and ultimately the most productive parts of the economy where the most rational allocation of capital takes place. What we want is a healthy private sector. There will be losses, there will be pain, there will be things that work, things that don't, but you will have the most efficient distribution of risk and reward that the world's ever seen in the private sector. And the more power we put it with central planners, the more authority we put with bureaucrats, with those who, as Hayek taught us, lack the knowledge, and as we intuitively know, lack the incentives. 
to ultimately steward the affairs of the economy. So my hope is for a lesser role for a Fed and a greater role for private markets. I'm David Bonson. I'm here filling in today for my pal, Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back with you very shortly. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. All right, I'm filling in for Larry Kudlow. This is David Bonson. Uh, really blessed to be here sitting in Larry's chair today and really excited to bring on our next guest. He's someone that has actually been on the show with me several times as a fellow guest, both of us together serving as guest for Larry. But right now he's going to be my guest, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Joe Livornia is the former chief economist at the White House National Economic Council. Uh, as you know, Larry used to be the director at the National Economic Council under the Trump administration. Joe currently is the chief economist at Natixis, a uh, giant asset manager. And Joe is as good as it gets, smart as they come. Hey, Joe, welcome to Cudlow. Thank you, David, for that very nice introduction. Happy to be with you. Thank you. Well, look, in the limited time we have, I kind of just want to turn it over to you and ask you what you make of uh, present market conditions. I went on my rant a few minutes ago as to why I think we give the Fed way too much credence in what's going on in the world, the market, the economy. Um, as you look out a few months from now, do you think all that's going to matter is the Fed funds rate? Or are you looking at profit outlook? Or, or does anything matter yeah. in the economy anymore besides the Fed? Sure. Uh, thank you, David. The, what I was struck about the Powell speech, well, he even said it, how direct it was. But it was interesting because they, they talk a lot about maintaining price stability, and that should be the Fed's job. However, unlike perhaps Bernanke and certainly Chairman Greenspan, and maybe to some extent uh, Chair Yellen, I don't exactly recall, Powell did not mention at all the fiscal aspect of why we have so much demand and why inflation is running perhaps as hot as it is. And, and that perhaps was, I don't want to say that was an oversight because I've got to believe the current chair is pretty knowledgeable about D.C. politics. But the fact they didn't mention the fiscal, I find extraordinary. Uh, so in that regard, the fact the Fed is trying to do everything, yes, I agree. You're exactly right. The Fed is is, is being held accountable for too many things. But the chair should have mentioned that one of the reasons we have the inflation is because of the fiscal. And people like Jason Furman and Larry Summers, who both worked uh, for Obama, President Obama, and, and of course, Larry Summers prior to that, President Clinton, uh, these are hardly you know, supply-siders, uh, uh, you know, Republican conservatives. And they were pretty, pretty rough in terms of what the administration was doing on student loan relief. I know that could cause inflation. So when I look at the Fed's comments that they need to destroy demand more, hurt demand more, and part of that's going to be in response to this inflationary student loan forgiveness, uh, it, it's likely, David, that the, the Fed's funds rate's going to go higher, but also the Fed is going, this is important, uh, is the balance sheet, which, you know, has not really unwound much, is going to have to shrink. I don't know how far the Fed is going to get because my sense is that as the liquidity really starts to be taken out of the market starting next month, 
that's going to have profound negative effects on risk assets, in particular credit. And that will then bleed back into equities. And we could see a significantly lower equity market based on my expectation that the Fed is going to be tighter than it's supposed to be or tighter than it should be, in part because of all this fiscal largesse. So if one believes, if one believes as I do, that the Fed will keep going until they break something, and yet so far they haven't broken anything other than, let's say, the most frothy sides of the market, crypto, the, the tech type stuff, you know, those 90, those, those PE ratios that were 90 that now are only at 40 or something like that. If, do you believe that uh, when credit markets break, then the Fed capitulates? Yes, that's always been the case. Every time the uh, on the downswings, uh, David, credit has always led the stock market in terms of when equities ultimately bottom. So that would be something to watch. And if credit, you start to see high yield spreads, investment rate spreads widen out significantly. That's going to be a telltale sign that there's more pain, broadly speaking, in risk assets, obviously including equities. Joe, thanks so much. Wish we had more time. What, a, what great thoughts? Appreciate you being with us, Thank Joe. You. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm David Bonson in for Larry Kudlow, and I am very excited to bring on a couple more guests now just to continue talking markets, talking everything going on in this crazy world. Maybe we'll even talk a little bit about student loan relief and and, and see if uh, uh, these guys uh, paid off their student debts back in the day or someone gave them the money. Uh, look, first, we are going to bring on Ken Bosari, managing partner, Case Capital Advisors, chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth, wonderful writer. He's been on TV all the time. I've been on with him a couple times. Love hearing everything Ken always has to say. And then very happy to bring on with Ken, Jack Bur. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce this as always. Jack Burogian, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Um, guys, thanks for being on with me here on the Larry Cuddle Show. Uh, Ken, I'll start with you. What's your take on the Fed and the market response yesterday? Listen, uh, Dave, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on with you, and congratulations on that spot. How great is that? Uh, so here's my response. Here's my thought about that. I- I've been saying it since November that that, that Fed was going to have to get uh, aggressive. I was disappointed uh, all year long when they were not as aggressive as I thought they should have been. Uh, this week, I was telling everyone in my note that if you thought he was going to come out and, and signal he was going soft, you were completely wrong. I didn't see how he could possibly suggest that uh, because of inflation running at 8.5% at the CPI level and 6.5% at the PCE level, which is their favored gauge. Um, but one way or the other, I, I, what I'm a little bit surprised is maybe the, the reaction that the market had yesterday, which I think was a little bit overdone because I think – a lot of people are, were in my camp thinking that that was going to have to happen. But look, they took it up uh, 20%. You know, during the month of August, everyone's going, oh, no, look at that. CPI is great. They're going to go soft. And look, what it's, you know, it's all off to the races, when in fact it really isn't. So this is just an adjustment. I suspect more chaos in the, uh, in the weeks ahead as we, as we pull into the FOMC meeting, which, by the way, I think they should just do an intra-meeting. I don't think now that he made that statement that they should wait till September. They should raise rates now and get it over with. That's an interesting thought, but let me let me ask you, Ken, as a follow-up, you talk about the potential overreaction in the stock market yesterday, but I pointed out in my monologue, the bond market didn't move. The 10-year right. didn't move a basis point. The two-year didn't move a basis point. Uh, what does that tell you? It, it, to me, it seems that rate expectations are pretty baked in. You have that inversion in there. 
Um, right. Does it mean anything to you that the bond market actually shrugged it all off? No, I, I think what the bond market is telling you is that the, is that the recession, if it's not already here, is coming for sure. Um, I'm a little bit I was also a little bit surprised to see that the bond market did not react. But you know what? We may see more of a reaction in the bond market next week after people have a chance this weekend. They're going to dissect it. They're going to discuss it. They're going to figure out what it really means. They're going to figure out, you know, where we really are. Certainly all the Sunday morning talk shows, shows like this are going to create conversation. Um, And I think we may actually see more of a reaction next week. Well, Jack, let me bring you in. What are your thoughts? Uh, uh, Fed action yesterday. Um, Ken believes that the Fed has to stay hawkish. Uh, I think they have to stay hawkish with rhetoric, but I still think a point comes where they capitulate. That point isn't yet. Uh, Where are you at with the Fed? David, Powell's doing his job. That's really what's happening. He's finally doing his job. You know, price stability has been the mantra for the Fed for now for a while, and we have seen what they've done. They, They made money worthless for so long that now when he starts to do what he's supposed to do, everybody's in shock. Well, the bond market's not in shock because the bond market knew exactly what he was talking about and exactly what he had to do a couple of months ago. It inverted a couple of months ago waiting for this to happen. I remember being on Larry's show back in maybe May and and talking about it because we were not yet inverted. And I said, that will be the signal. That will be the signal that tells us that the rest of the market is going to follow suit. And and the one argument I'll make with Kenny is that not everybody is as smart as he is. All right. When they saw that bounce happening, you had a lot of people that were expecting a pivot. They were expecting Powell to pivot based off of the inflation numbers that are coming because there's so much volatility in them. But the reality is that there's so much more happening. And the one thing that I'll add, and I know it's a good segue into other things we'll talk about, is that just maybe – that the student loan thing, all right, turned out to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Remember, we have been talking about fiscal restraint and how it just did not exist. And all of a sudden, you've got a situation where you've got the Fed pulling back on the reins. All right. They're starting to cut back on money supply. And you have got some serious spending coming out of D.C. It gets to the point where people that own stocks go, wait a second. This might not be the right time to be this long with equities and have this much risk exposure. But, but, but Jack, let me let me push back on that part, because it. The the problem is that the announcement came Wednesday, right? The markets had Wednesday to hear about this this insane student loan forgiveness idea, and they went up 400 points Thursday. They went down 1,000 Friday, but it doesn't seem to me like the I, – I wonder if the markets don't even believe this student loan nonsense is going to happen, that the, that the, well, the it, courts it, are going to boot it out. Like volume. Remember, that, that rally happened on like that. And, and Kenny will tell you, when we're in the middle of August and you see snapback rallies like that, you always have to you know, take them with a grain of salt. And that's exactly right. what happened. It happened on very, very light volume. And what it did right. is it kind of set the stage. And again, people were waiting for the pivot, and which did not come. When he held his ground, when Powell held his ground, all right, the bond market proved right. And that means the stock market is probably going to lose another 10 to 15 percent just to get to where the bonds are telling us it should be. But, but Kenny, right. if, if, uh, if the bond market um, is kind of pricing this in the right way, it's it telling us two things. It's not just the short end of the curve at 338 saying the Fed's going to get up to a 350 Fed funds rate. The 10 years at three. The 10 year is 50 basis points off of its high from a couple months ago. 
Isn't the 10-year telling you that long-term inflation and long-term growth are going to uh, downward pressure? That at some point on the other side of this, we're back to Japanification, low growth, slow growth. Isn't that the long end of the curve telling us? Well, I, I mean, listen, that's certainly you could you could discern that from the long end of the curve. I'm just not sure yet that um, uh, that I believe I, you know, I, I just don't believe it yet. But you could get people that say, just like you said, that, yes, it's telling us we're going to get the slowdown. Yes, it's telling you that rates are not going to go much higher from you know where they are, uh, that the market's going to catch up. I'm just in the camp that I think the bond market is confused at the moment based on what I think is going to happen. Right. Because I think he's not going to back off on rates. I don't see how he can. And I'm afraid that this is going to be a repeat of, uh, of what we saw in the late 70s and 80s, that the CPI you know, is going gonna, is gonna to roll over just for a couple of months, and then it's going to rear its ugly head again uh, and, and shoot higher as we move into the fall, because I think energy is going to rise again. It's, we're already seeing it. It's up 11% in five days. You know, so it's taken back some of that 25% uh, retreatment that it gave us for the month of August. It's starting to head higher again. And that's going to start to reflect itself in the CPI, whether it's in September, whether it's October. And I think that's what's going to uh, catch the market by surprise. So, so there's two elements there, right? There's both what the actual inflation rate would do and then what the Fed's response to all of it would be. And you guys are both arguing that, no, Powell's serious about this, where he sees inflation, he's committed to price stability. Uh, but Joe Livorni in our last segment brought up the balance sheet, okay? And so we're yeah. talking all about what they're going to do on rates. They've been allegedly getting $47 billion a month off of their $9 trillion balance sheet, much like someone with $100,000 uh, you know, paying down 10 bucks yeah. a month or something like that. So it hasn't been much, but they're doubling it next month. We're going to start supposedly seeing close to $100 billion a month come off the balance sheet. We right. haven't seen this. The dual activity of significant yeah. balance sheet reduction and interest rate hikes at the same time since Q4 of 2018. When we saw it in Q4 of 2018, credit markets froze up, and Powell right. threw in the towel in about 25 seconds. Do you think that the QE reversal, quantitative tightening, as they kick it up a notch, will accelerate the eventual capitulation that I'm predicting? Well, uh, listen, I think if they start to tighten and they see the market completely fall apart, that they'll pull back on the tightening before they'll pull back on rates. I think they'll, I think it's easier for them to say, OK, let's pull back on the tightening. Let's go back to $45 billion a month or whatever the number they want to choose versus pivoting and capitulating on rates. That's that's just how I see it. Jack, what's your um, take on that? This Fed has a credibility problem, a huge right. credibility problem. And if they were to do anything other than what they are saying right now and maintain their mantra and keep on this road, they are going to completely have a huge problem with the markets. It's, it's getting to that point. You know, nobody seems right. to believe what the, what, what the Fed is telling us. Look, they're even telling us that a recession isn't, isn't two negative uh, quarters in a row. They're trying to reinvent the wheel here in front of our eyes. And but, Jack, why, to, and why do you think people would not believe what the Fed's telling you? I mean, this is the part i got to defend those who don't believe it because they haven't meant well, it for 20 years. They haven't no, meant it once in 20 it's, years. It's, it's not their job. Their job is not to make us feel good about the economy. Their job is to be the vanguard of the banking system, to watch out with their dual mandate, all right, for employment and for, and for price stability. That is their job. When they start to get political in any way, when they start to become the salve, all right, when they start to become our panacea in some ways, that is the wrong way to look at it. 
But that I'm not, not but Jack, I'm not, I'm not talking about what they ought to be doing. I, I'm saying what they have done, going back to Greenspan through Bernanke, Yellen, Powell, the history is that they have generally coddled risk assets. They've generally well, coddled it, it, housing. They, they, that's, that's because they have made cash worthless. We know that. We, we've watched that, and that's why we're, we're going through this, this type of agita as we watch the market doing what it's doing, because it's got to get back down to levels that make sense. It's been acting, it, it, it's, it's been on air for so long. It's been on a sugar high. This is what happens when you take a patient off of steroids. You have been shooting the patient with steroids now for a decade, and you're making it sicker and sicker and sicker. You've got to take more than a decade. off. And exactly, well, more than a decade. And now we've gotten to the point where you've got artificial pricing, you know, for, for right. years in, in the fixed income market. And now you've got artificial pricing and equities until yeah, we can right. get to the point where we find equilibrium. Okay, and guys, we got to take a break. We, we got to take a break here for commercial. We're going to pick that up when we come back. We're going to talk about steroid economics and the Federal Reserve. Back at you after this commercial break. I'm David Bonson in for Larry Kudlow today, having a great time trying to fill in his capable shoes the best I can, and joined right now by guests Ken Bosari and Jack Barogian, and we're talking about the Fed. Uh, they're defending the uh, need of Jerome Powell to see this through, uh, continue to kind of normalize the cost of capital and bring us to a place of monetary policy that isn't, shall we say, clinically insane. And uh, they're confident he's going to go all the way through and see it uh, to the point it needs to get, and along the way, exacerbates volatility in the markets, things like that. So, hey, let's see if we can go like a whole eight minutes without having to talk about the Fed, um, which is something that seems almost impossible these days with uh, financial media and with market actors. The Fed has been deified. And now let's see, as three market guys, if we can't just talk about what we like in the markets, uh, irrespective of, of you know all these ideas of will they, won't they on the Fed funds rate, uh, Jack, I'll start with you. Um, what right now do you believe is attractive in this investment landscape? David, there are very few times you will hear me say this, and, and, and Kenny knows what I'm going to say, but there's a time where cash is probably king in your portfolio. Right. Uh, when, especially when you get to times of instability, and we're, we're now entering September, which is historically going to be the, is the worst month for the market. Um, it's going to come at a time where there are going to be some serious liquidations taking place. This is the end of the quarter, and it's going to be right before midterms. This is going to get – this could get very, very ugly. I'm concerned about that. I would rather be in cash, wait for the market to come off another 10 or 15 percent, uh, and buy it down there. Now, having said that, um, you know what? I'd like to be in you – know, and, and Kenny was talking about it once before uh, when we were on the show. Uh, natural gas stocks, I think, are, are a good play right now, um, especially what's happening out in Europe. We want to be in, in certain asset classes that are going to be in demand regardless of what happens in the stock market, and, and energy is one of those asset classes right now. All right, right, so generally bearish, but uh, but like energy, that seems that seems like a, a, a you know a conventional call right now. Energies continue to do well. I was pointing out earlier, Nasdaq down four and a half percent this week, down seven point seven since its uh, mid-August high, and yet energy was up on the week. Midstream was up on the week. Producers were up. Natural gas, especially the commodity itself, fifteen-year high. Uh, they they can't get enough in Europe. Russia's still messing around out there. Ken, you agree with Jack? You like the energy space yeah. right now? No, no, yeah, I absolutely do. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely do. And I think 
coal and nat gas are places that uh, investors are going to be able to find some uh, stability and some opportunity, right? Because that's certain, this situation is not getting any better anytime soon. And winter is coming across the Northern Hemisphere, and we see what's going on in Europe, across Europe. And so, yes, nat gas and coal are certainly places. But like you, David, I would prefer in this, in this kind of unsettled environment, and I do agree with Jack as well, September is going to be kind of a chaotic month. It typically is, and I wouldn't be surprised to see the market back off some more. But there is opportunity. If you're a long-term player in a place like this, uh, consumer staples and big dividend, play, uh, big dividend paying stocks, you know, big mega cap, Americana names that are consistent, uh, the stuff people need, right? There's stuff that people are going to buy, whether, whether we have inflation or not, because they have to. Uh, and names like that are consumer staple names that are good dividend payers, and they'll offer some stability, right? Utilities are another place that I would look for some opportunity. I'd stay away at the moment from the big, sexy, high-growth names because I think those are going to get smushed um, uh, in September. The way they took them up in August, they're going to take them right back down in September, and then I think there'll be more opportunity in some of those big mega-cap names, all right? I don't play in that social media kind of new sexy names just because of where I am on my life cycle and my risk sale. But if you're a 30 year old and you've got 40 years to go, then there's going to be other places of opportunity. People should not necessarily run away uh, when the market gets anxious like this, but they shouldn't be haphazard either, right? They need to, if cash is where they want to be for another couple of weeks and wait, that's great. If they want to take advantage of individual opportunities, because I think it is a, I think it is a, a stock pickers market. Um, then they should I, do I'm, that. But I'm, those are kind of the sectors that I like. I, I'm not sure where I am in the life cycle. I'm 48, Kenny, and I, I and I don't touch that social media stuff and the big tech <laughs> stuff. But 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 I don't think it's because of my age. I think it's because when a stock goes from 80 times earnings to 50 times, right. I have a hard time right. saying it's gotten cheap. Well, well, you know, a lot, a lot of us have lived through that. We call it the dot-com bubble. And that's Kenny, right. And we're right there, you know, watching, watching accounts go up and down. Right. Uh, but but right. The, the, one thing that, the one thing that I will say uh, with, with everything that's been happening is that, you know, you mentioned the yield curve, especially what's happening with the 10-year and the fact that we're seeing the 10 years stay low. You know, there's a reason for that. There, there's a, a, a – you know, we have been – We've been lulled into complacency as an investment, as an investment, uh, you know, arm. If you think about it, as an investment group, uh, and I'm talking about the the U.S. public. You know, the, the cheap money over the course of these last what since '08, since '09, since we saw the Fed act uh, with the Great Recession have made us think that the market is a one-way ticket to heaven, that it's always right. a buy on every dip. We have now got a Fed that is going to be serious about tightening. They are going to be tightening for a while. This, this yeah. market is not going to act the way people have been conditioned to think it's going to act. Exactly. And, and when that happens, you, the market can really end up reacting in ways that people did not expect. I, I think that... there is some I, Jack, let me let me say the the problem I have with that. I basically agree definitely about the financial repression, people being lulled into complacency. You essentially have what is it now? I think uh, thirteen of the fourteen post-crisis years were positive years in the market. Um, all the quantitative easing, the downward pressure. Now remember too, there was a lot of earnings growth that took place. You you really had organic earnings growth on top of Federal Reserve kerosene in the last 14, 15 years. But the, but the idea that this time now it really is different. I don't know that we know that yet. I agree they're going to get to three fifty on the Fed funds. 
I don't know that they're going to get higher. I don't know that they should get higher. I'm not one who believes the Fed funds rate is going to be the primary driver of pushing inflation lower. I think that there's plenty of supply side things that need to happen to get inflation lower that the Fed couldn't control if they want to. The Fed can't produce more more uh, drilling in Oklahoma. They can't do it. And, and so the, the idea about a capital markets decision that assumes Powell is the new Volcker, I agree you don't want to assume he's not. But I, I look until credit markets break, we don't know it, where Powell's really going to be. And so far, I think he feels like he hasn't broken anything. You know, well, listen, I, I would agree. I would agree with that, except for the fact that I think he already he's he's been overseeing a broken Fed, and and unfortunately, he's going to try to fix this thing. And he basically came right out in Jackson Hole and said it's going to cause a lot of pain. You know, for right. the Fed chairman to come right out and say that, that's so significant. You know, remember, this is somebody yes. that, that we have been, again, conditioned to, to hear him say, everything will be fine. Please relax. There's going to be more right. money out there than ever before. And now we have him saying, you're going to feel pain. That, that exactly. Is, that is very difficult to digest as as as, a, as an investor who, who's been in the market for the last, say, five or eight years, who's seen the market go nothing but up and has made, been, been making money, who speculated on three pieces of real estate now, and now all of a sudden with, with rates going up cannot even cover one of the mortgages, let alone the three. These are the things that are happening, and they're going to start to develop. Those are the ancillary effects of, of, the, of the pain that Powell was talking about. Ken, jump in there. Right. So listen, I do agree with that. And you have to and you have to understand that with this didn't have to happen if the Fed had reacted in the spring of 2021 when inflation went from one point six to three point one percent in one month and then continued to go higher all through 2021 while they told us, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We got this. They didn't have it. It's clear they didn't have it. And now we're in this position that now. Uh, 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 Jay's Powell, Jay, uh, Jay Powell's feet are on the fire, and now he's got to get even more aggressive. And I think that was the message yesterday that he said. I think it's clear that he's not going to pivot anytime soon. He said that rates are going to remain higher for longer. Um, and so these people that thought we were going to get a rate cut in you know, April or May of next year, I think they're sadly mistaken. I don't see how that can happen. Uh, unless we see a complete collapse in the PCE and the CPI over the next two or three months. And I don't see that. Well, okay, but Ken, what if it isn't a complete collapse? Like, what if you're at 350 Fed funds rate going into next year, and yeah. by April, I think you said, by April, unemployment is getting into the high fours. I don't think he is raising rates a whiff. No way. I think well, they okay. chicken out. That, I, see, I'm on, the, I'm on the opposite side of that argument. I don't think he can – I don't think – remember – Remember, and again, and I, you know, people say don't go to Volcker, but unemployment was 10 percent and, yeah. and Volcker forced rates up to 21 percent when inflation was running at, you know, 13 yeah. percent. You had you had the biggest supply side the biggest supply side revolution we'd ever seen going on when Volcker was doing it. Powell has to fight against the total lack of support on the supply side. I think I think that um, it's interesting. We're all in agreement, you know, in the long term reality of the Fed. They've done so much yeah. to distort markets. There's such a big yeah. need for normalization. And yeah. we would love to see Powell be the guy to help bring it. I still saw Powell in late 2018, saw what Powell did out of the COVID moment and assumed it was his job to create alphabet soup. Maybe he's right. the guy to try to normalize the Fed. But uh, right now, we're at least in agreement that they're not about to start giving markets any help anytime soon. It's a great discussion. Ken and Jack loved having you on. 
It was my honor to be in the seat today for my dear friend and hero, Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. This is not Larry Kudlow. This is Steve Moore. Larry uh, is on a well-deserved vacation. I hope he's having a great day, a great weekend. And boy, does he deserve a vacation or at least a little time off. The guy works, I don't know, 70 hours a week doing the Kudlow show and then doing this radio station and providing all of the great economic advice that he provides our politicians. Sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. And when they do listen, good things happen. And when they don't listen to them, bad things happen. And I think that explains what's going on with our economy. By the way, folks, this is Steve Moore. Uh, we're we're um, doing the More Money Show an hour early today, and we will go till two o'clock. So I have two hours with you. Thank you for tuning in. I've said many times uh, that John Katz, who's the owner of this station and, and a host of many great shows on this station, that this is a high privilege for me. Uh, I really believe that WABC Radio in New York is the top talk radio station in these United States. So what a what a wonderful opportunity this is for me every week to talk to you about what is going on with our economy, what is going on with Washington, and what's going on on Wall Street. Um, I want to remind people, if you are not getting the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, what we call our hotline, which is an email that goes out five mornings a week, um, please sign up for it. It is free. I'm not selling you anything, folks. This is this is not some kind of uh, uh, a way to raise money. It's simply a way to educate people about what is going on uh, with our economy, with your finances. And so if you'd like to get the Committee to Unleash Prosperity hotline for free, just um, go to the Committee to Unleash Prosperity uh, website and you can sign in and just give give us your email. We'll send it to you. Five mornings a week. I talked to Newt Gingrich last week, and he said that this is the first thing he reads every morning. And by the way, you can read it in probably anywhere between five and seven minutes, a really short read, five or six items about what's going on with the economy, politics, COVID. Um, and by the way, on the subject of COVID, I was reading a story yesterday that just kind of shocked me. I kind of fell off my chair when I read this, that um, there are still a number of colleges, as you know, most colleges started this past week. Some colleges will be starting on Monday in terms of uh, classes. And this this uh, survey of college students found that um, over six out of 10 college kids will be wearing masks on campus most of the time, according to the survey. Now, <laughs> this was an online survey. It was not scientific. So uh, a lot of virtue signaling probably going on in these answers. But even if it's close to correct, uh, COVID is basically over. You know, and I, by the way, people, I believe in freedom of choice. If people want to wear a mask, you can wear a mask anytime, any place you want to. Although, did you see that story about many uh, uh, city stores are asking people not to wear a mask because they can't tell the difference between the bandits and the uh, and the burglars and, and the people who are uh, just wearing masks because of COVID. And so um, I found that to be kind of ironic that uh, some of these 7-Eleven stores and so on are telling people, don't wear a mask because we don't know if you're a criminal or not. But my point is, when you have six out of 10 college students saying they're going to wear a mask when there's virtually no risk from COVID, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me, especially for young people. But look, if they want to wear masks, that's fine. But there are a number of colleges that are going to still require masks in the classroom. So, for example, Georgetown in Washington and George 
Washington University for indoor activities are requiring masks. Um, we're two and a half years into COVID and people are still, the schools are still requiring masks. I, I saw that there are a lot of um, uh, kindergartens and there's a lot of um, grade schools across the country that are still requiring their kids to wear masks. Look, for a, yeah, to ask an eight-year-old to wear a mask still these days when kids are not vulnerable to uh, to COVID is really, I think, cruel. <laughs> I think it's cruel. And it's a real setback to the education of these kids that they are trying to learn in a setting where everybody's wearing masks. By the way, I am a little bit hard of hearing. So I have to wear a hearing aid. And even the hearing aid only restores about half of my lost hearing. So I, I have a hard time um, hearing people. And especially when they're wearing masks, I can't hear a word that people are saying because the sound becomes so muffled. And so there's a real kind of cost to uh, communicating with people when you're wearing a mask. And I know a lot of kids say they have a hard time understanding what the teacher is saying. Or when you go to church, sometimes the even the priest or the or the minister is wearing a mask and it's hard to hear the sermon. So um, I don't understand this mania for masks. I think it's time to tear them off. I think it's time to get rid of all of these requirements, by the way. And if people want to go through the rest of their life wearing a mask, that's their that's their right as an individual. But come on, masks in school doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, I'm going to be taking your calls, by the way, on this program, on the More Money program, in the second hour of the program. So I, I hope that people will call in because I love to hear from you. As usual, I'm not in a great mood today. Well, I'm in a great mood because it's a beautiful day uh, all across the um, East Coast. And so that's fantastic. It's a wonderful day to enjoy the sunshine and the not too hot air. Uh, it's going to be a little cooler than it's been. So that's really fantastic. Get out, get exercise, get the fresh air. Uh, those are the best ways, by the way, to stay healthy, fresh air and exercise. And too many people locked themselves in during COVID and they didn't do a lot of good for their health. But I want to talk about our nation's financial health in the few minutes before I get to my first guest, David Sokol, who's coming up. Uh, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> what is going on in Washington? We are now at $4 trillion of borrowing under under Biden, above the normal amount of money that we spend. So I know those of you who are regular listeners know that I've been giving this sermon week after week after week, but I've got to drill it into folks, especially if you're a new listener, $4 trillion. That's what Joe Biden has spent over the amount that the government usually spends. By the way, our bar, our, um, our federal budget is uh, right now $6 trillion, and then they've added $4 trillion. An infrastructure bill, a blue state bailout bill, a, cor a corporate welfare bill. Uh, they now they have this. Uh, they passed this health care expansion bill and the and the uh, green new deal bill. And now another three hundred to five hundred billion dollars for student loan relief. Um, I wonder. I want to hear from people on this uh, in the second hour. Are you as outraged about this as I am? I was looking at polls. It looks like about two-thirds of Americans find this to be fundamentally unfair. It's unfair to the people who paid back their loans. I mean, you know this. You've heard this over the last few days. But I just cannot believe that Joe Biden and the liberals are behind this idea. Why? Why should, why should I have to pay for the uh, deadbeats who aren't paying their loans? Yeah, and I use the word deadbeat. Because somebody who doesn't pay their loan is a deadbeat. You signed on the dotted line. Nobody put a gun to these kids' head or their or the parents' heads and said you have to take out a loan. 
for college, and they did it with the promise that they would pay back the loan. And now, that, and by the way, a lot of these people are making hundred thousand dollars a year, and they're not paying back their loans. And there has to be people who make sixty thousand dollars a year or seventy thousand dollars a year, an electrician maybe, or uh, you know somebody who's running a small business to repay their loan. This that's not America. <laughs> what is this? You are responsible for your own behavior, folks. I'm not responsible for you if you fall down. Now, look, sure, I want to help pick people up, and we we are a Christian nation. We want to help people when they're down on the luck. But a lot of these people are just people who just say, you know what, I'm not going to repay it. I'm gonna I'm gonna spend money on a you know an e-bike, or I'm gonna spend money go to the movies, or going out for dinner, and we'll just let the taxpayers pick up the tab, folks. That's how we got to 24 trillion dollars in debt with that kind of attitude. That the, that the government's going to pay for your food, your rent. You're going to pay for it if you don't work. They're going to pay for you if you don't pay your back to your debts. I'm here to tell you, folks, this is not America. That's not what America is about. It's about pull, people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It's about people honoring their commitments. It's about paying your bills. And if that breaks down, folks, our society breaks down. And it's an issue of fundamental fairness that the people who repaid their loans should not have to pay for the people who do. Now, if you actually think I'm wrong on this, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you next hour because I have never heard a good defense of this. I don't even understand the logic of it. And by the way, there's a new study by the Penn Wharton uh, model, uh, the, that university there. They're saying the cost could be 500 to a trillion dollars. What are we doing? We're bankrupting our country. I love this country. This is the greatest country on earth. It was built on free enterprise, individual initiative, people acting responsibly, and that is breaking down in this country. Joe Biden seems to think that somebody else is going to pay everybody's bills, and if that happens, this great country of ours is going to falter and go bankrupt. I'm Steve Moore. This is the More Money Show. Stay tuned. I have David Sokol coming on, one of our great American businessmen, to talk about these issues more. This is WABC. Hi, folks. This is Steve Moore substituting in for Larry Kudlow today, who is on a very well-deserved vacation. Uh, I am a, a regular guest on Larry Kudlow's uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Time uh, show on Fox Business, which I hope you all watch every uh, every weekday. It is now rated, by the way, the number one. Larry's not going to say this because he's too modest, but I'm going to boast uh, for him that he has the number one talk business show on um, cable TV of all the networks. So congratulations, congratulations, Larry Kudlow. What what a great show and what a great communicator he is. But I am substituting for him this hour. This is the Red Apple Network. And our flagship, of course, is WABC Talk Radio in New York. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this great, um, beautiful, beautiful um, Saturday afternoon across the country. So I want to get to my uh, guest, David Sokol. David is the author of a great new book called um, America in Perspective. Uh, he is the co-author of that book with um, Adam Brandon, who is... Uh, a colleague of mine at uh, a, a um, group called um, Freedom Works, and so you should check out their website. But this book is really a must-read because it tells us the history of this country and how we got to the level of prosperity we have, but also how we can save our country because 
I'm very nervous about the direction of things. Um, David is um, a very successful businessman, uh, grew up in Nebraska, and has really become a Horatio Alger story of how you pull yourself up for your bootstraps and become financially successful in this country. So he has very sage advice for the rest of us. David, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Steve. Thanks for having me. So uh, I don't know if you heard what I was saying earlier, uh, a few minutes ago on the show, but I'm very disturbed about this uh, idea of the student loan bailout. And it's not even about the money so much, uh, uh, David. You know, we're a rich country and we're borrowing so much money already. What's another half trillion dollars of debt? But I think I'm worried about what this, the kind of signal that we're sending to kids and young adults and even older adults that they don't have to repay their bills, that someone else is responsible for their finances. And that just seems to be un-American to me. What say you? Well, I agree completely, Steve. I think it's it's actually one of the reasons things like this are, are the reasons Adam and I wrote the book. Um, and I think there's five reasons why this tuition thing just is is insane. You know, the first is the president does not, nor should he have the authority to spend a half a trillion dollars or more of America's taxpayer right. dollars without congressional uh, direction. And he does not have it. And he knows he doesn't yeah. have it. Yeah. Secondly, By the way, if I can just you know, interrupt you for a second on that, yeah. um, you're you're exactly right. And I think what's almost comical about that is that the he's asserting a power, uh, an emergency power from COVID, David. <laughs> COVID ended a year ago. What is student ro loan relief? have anything to, how could that have anything to do with someone repaying their student loan so it just shows that this is a desperate attempt for the president to subvert congress and by the way even nancy pelosi agrees with us on this well and he did too a year ago um <laughs> but you know it is it, it's another half a trillion dollars they just spent 700 billion um yeah. two weeks ago uh, for 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 something that's certainly not going to reduce inflation it's going to increase inflation and increase our national debt and then, you know, so that's two. The third thing is, does anybody believe that this wasn't just an effort to buy votes for the midterm election? I mean, it's not shouldn't be lost on anyone that he made his announcement and he's running around the country uh, on the first week of, of students back on campus. And, uh, exactly. and then the, the, the next item is, as an American that people should be concerned with is this action does absolutely nothing to correct the insanity of the underlying bill. Which, which will loan money irrespective of the value of the education. You know, when, you, when, when somebody buys a, a Camry, uh, you know, forget the total equipment, but you know, call it $30,000, banks will only loan 80% effectively against the value of that car. Only the United States government, if you told them, gee, but I'm going to buy this car at a place called Princeton, and it's going to cost me $300,000, only the United States government would say, oh, okay, well, then I'll, I'll loan you $300,000 to buy that Camry. Um, you know, I mean, can I stop you there for a minute? Because, again, this, you're making yeah. some excellent points, and I want to amplify this because, you know, I have not made that point, but it is, really, it, is, it is a really strong one because what you're saying then is that the student or the family doesn't really have any skin in the game. You know, they don't have to put up any money. And that, that's, by the way, that's right uh, why the, you know, the banks normally require you to put some skin in the game uh, so that uh, you're showing that you have a commitment to repay the loan. 
And so you're right. That's outrageous. And I would just add to what you're saying, David, that, um, by the way, I'm talking to David Sokol, who is the author of the great new book, uh, American Perspective, that, um, you know, this is one of the reasons that the universities keep raising their tuition. Because that's, and right. that's been the fastest rate of increase in inflation over the last 30 years has been student uh, tuitions, in part because of the government's picking up the tab. That's right. And if, we, and if we're going to and if we think that that providing an opportunity to borrow money from from our taxpayers for someone to get an education, well, why why shouldn't we limit it to state institutions in the state where they live? And I'll give you an example. I, I got the, the numbers this morning. Uh, a young person can get an English degree at the University of Nebraska at Omaha if they live at home. Their total cost of tuition to get a four-year uh, English degree would be twenty-two thousand dollars. Wow! Books, 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 and, and tuition. If they get that same degree from Princeton, it's almost three hundred thousand dollars. Now, That's the reality is that English that, that English degree you'll get the same salary at whatever school district you end up teaching English in whether you went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha or Princeton. And so the fact that our government Amazing. will, will yeah. loan money for something, that, that, that student's never going to be able to pay that loan back. But, it, but that was preordained up front. I mean, if we're going to have a system, use the state university system, allow kids to get the benefit of in, in-state tuition, uh, and, and only, only loan money to the value of the education. Um, and then, you know, the last I of the five points out on this, yeah, the last of the five points is, this is, in my lifetime, the worst example of government socialism in practice. The president of the United States, yeah. without congressional authority, is taking a half a trillion dollars and giving it away to, to garner votes and, and, and to feel good for himself. Yeah. Um, th- yeah. That is you know, socialism. David, I think, I, I think that's backfiring, though. I really do. I think people are so angry, and they see this for what you, you're just saying. They see it as a cynical ploy by the uh, Biden administration to buy votes of young voters. But I'll tell you, I mean, I talked to people like my wife. She went to UCLA. She, when she graduated, she didn't have, you know, a huge salary. Uh, and she, but she did repay her loan. And now she's furious. You know, she just feels like it's like a chump, you know, because the, yeah. the other people in her class didn't pay back their loan. And now she has to pay taxes to bail out their, their loans when she did the right thing and they didn't. Yeah. You know what? I worked two jobs to pay for my tuition each semester. And, and, uh, and frankly, it affected, you know, other things I could have done and, and, and my athletic career and, and, uh, and everything else, but, but it was the right thing to do. I wanted to get an education. I didn't have a family that could afford to pay for it. And, and, but, but I went to a, to a state university, which was perfectly good school and, and got a degree. I mean, this 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 type of socialism. And by the way, this is socialism in its worst possible form yes. because you're talking about yes. giving away money to people making 125 and 250 thousand dollars a year. So we're not trying to help yeah. low income folks. So David, <laughs> yeah, is, David, let me let me give you an example of what you're talking about. I, I you went to University of Nebraska, right? Right. Yep. And I, w- I went to the University of Illinois, a fellow <laughs> Big Ten school. And when I graduated, I think I graduated in 84, 1984, my tuition was about $1,200 a semester. Do you know what it is today? It's more like um, $15,000 a semester. So think about that. Yeah. In 30 years you know, or so, they've increased the tuition 
you know, more than 12 fold. So, uh, you know, it's just so unfair. We're, we're only making college less affordable, not more affordable with these loans. That's right. And, and, you know, the very technology that allows us to use Zoom calling today and all kinds of other, you know, Microsoft Teams and all this stuff, those technologies were originally yeah. developed in universities. And universities are the only, <clears throat> the only institutions that don't use them. I mean, education <laughs> today so true. should be... Yeah, hey, David, I've got to take a break. i got to take a quick break. Can, uh, can I hold you over to the next section? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Okay, that's David Sokol. This is Steve Moore. I'm filling in for the great Larry Kudlow on the Kudlow Show on Red Apple Media. Hello, folks. This is Steve Moore. I am subbing in today for the great Larry Kudlow, and it is a privilege to be uh, subbing in for one of our nation's greatest economists, so I'll do the best that I can. Uh, we have uh, three great guests uh, right now. Uh, David Sokol is holding on for us. He is the author of this fantastic new book called American Perspective. Go to, go to Amazon and get this book and get your kids to read it. It is so important that people understand how, how, our, how our prosperity was created in the first place, how we became the richest country in the world, and how we are putting it in so much danger right now. And then I have Monica Crowley, who's a, a long-standing uh, friend. She was the um, at the Treasury Department under uh, President Trump, did an amazing job uh, working with um, uh, Kudlow and others to create the incredible prosperity we had under Donald Trump. And then, of course, we have uh, my former colleague at the Wall Street Journal, uh, John Fund, who is now with National Review and also is one of the co-authors of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline. So hello to all of you. Thank you for joining us on this Saturday afternoon. A lot to cover. Monica, I want to start with you. I was talking in the previous Hi, segment uh, to, uh, to David about just the craziness of this loan, you know, student loan program. And David did a great job dissecting that. But I want to put this in a larger framework because, Monica, what the hell is going on with our country? I mean, when you left the White House uh, 18, 20 months ago, we had a booming economy. We were coming out of COVID. We had done the tax cuts. We had done the deregulations. We had gotten tough with China. We had the you know, we had become energy independent. We had one and a half percent inflation. I mean, it was just all systems were go. And now we've got an economy that's limping. And what's what happened? <laughs> well, hi, Steve. And thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on with all of you today. Um, look, in about, what, 20 short months, we have gone from a booming and thriving economy, as <laughs> you just pointed out, Steve, as a direct result of very common sense economic policies, tax mm -hmm. cuts, regulatory relief, unleashing our great energy sector, and right. negotiating fair trade deals with the likes of China and Mexico and Canada and so on, which is an extraordinary achievement on the part of President Trump. Right. So when the pandemic yep. hit, all of those policies were put on hold while we shut down the country. But when we started opening up again, and a lot of people forget, Steve, that we began opening up again in May of 2020. I remember. Point, yep. Right? I mean, it's been that yep. long that we, we've been opened up. Uh, at least in the red states, and we saw about a million jobs recovered <laughs> every month for a couple yeah. of months after we started opening back up. Yeah. 
So all of those pro-growth policies kicked back in. And so when Trump handed off the economy to Joe Biden, as you point out, it was thriving. The the reason we are seeing what we are seeing now is uh, twofold. One, Joe Biden and unified Democratic control in Washington uh, thought orange man bad. Everything he did needs to be thrown into reverse, including the economic policies, which they did. But there is a much bigger picture narrative here that everybody needs to be aware of, Mm -hmm. which is that the Democratic Party of today is not your father's or grandfather's Democratic Party. This is a Marxist revolutionary party. And we are literally living through a neo-Marxist revolution where they want to, in Obama's words, fundamentally transform the nation. That's what all of these policies are designed to do. Mm -hmm. Trump was in there for four years So he put it all on pause. Remember, he was not supposed to be elected. Eight years of Obama, eight years of Hillary, lock it all in. Trump threw a monkey wrench into all of this. So what you are now seeing is that they are moving with all deliberate speed to make up lost time on this great (laughs) reset here at home. Well, Monica, you know, that's a great summary of what's going on. And, you know, I hear uh, Biden uh, was saying, uh, John Fund, the other day that – that were the Marxists, or what term did he use? He called the neo-fascists or something like that. And um, I'm thinking, well, my gosh, he's the one that has massively increased our debt, massively increased our spending, massively increased the power of government. Uh, I was talking to David Sokol in the previous segment about this unconstitutional uh, you know, a grab of power by Biden to assert that he can just forgive people student loans and put that on the back of the taxpayers when the last time I checked the Constitution, it says that the power of the purse is with Congress. So um, this is a can you imagine if Donald Trump tried to assert this power? They'd say, oh, he's a dictator. Well, remember, when Joe Biden says that the opposition is semi fascistic, uh, there's a psychological term called projection. Which means that you you describe onto the other side the behavior that you yourself are doing. Uh, That's exactly what's happening. You're right. Which is which is which is marinated throughout the Biden administration. So, John, um, you wrote a pretty interesting piece in the hotline the other day about this possible idea that the um, that the announcement of the vaccine was intentionally delayed to after the election. And I just find that to be fascinating. We, we may never know the truth about this, but if that's the case, uh, you know, that may be the election scandal of 2020. Well, I've always said that the rigging of the system, the mail-in voting, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. excuse of COVID as a way to change the fundamental method by which people voted and make it very chaotic, the suppression of the Hunter Biden story and the curious delay in approving the vac- or approving the vaccine all points to I mean, the proof of rigging the election is pretty clear. Uh, the media cooperated, uh, the medical community, the epidemiologists and the public health officials cooperated. And, of course, the uh, health officials and the secretaries of state who changed the election rules because of covid to make it much more difficult to have an accurate vote count all contributed. Uh, the election was rigged. Yeah. By the way, John, I like what you've said about this. I use your line all the time. I think you said they you've said they stole it fair and square. Right? <laughs> I mean, they changed all the rules so that it was jerry rigged so that Trump, you know, could hardly win. Well, actually, they didn't change it fair and square. 
a lot of these rules were changed at the direction of health uh, directors ah, who aren't elected right, by anybody right. and by governors who didn't consult the legislature. Remember, governors yeah, only in emergencies right. are supposed to issue regulations, uh, and the, some of their authority was way broader than it should have been. The legislatures, which actually passed the laws, were never consulted. So, David Sokol, um, I think one of the themes I really want to drill down uh, with the uh, three of you is something we talked about earlier, which is this whole idea of individual responsibility. And you as someone who's been so successful in your life, you know, was not <laughs> born with a silver spoon in your mouth. How do we get back to this idea of people responsible for their own lives? And, uh, you know, obviously we believe that um, – we want people to get a good education and we want to give people every opportunity they can. But I'm just worried that we become such a big socialist state now that somebody, everyone believes someone else is going to take care of them. Well, there, there's that, but there's also an apathy. Well, you know, the, the American people, and one of the things we try to get across in, in our book, uh, American Perspective, is the reason this country has been successful is because it has been a, a uh, build, build yourself up. And, and right. you know, chase your dream, create, create, you know, there's a reason why in the last 250 years, there's only been one dream. It's the American dream. It's not the China mm -hmm. dream, the Russia dream. It's right. not the Argentinian dream. And that's because, because our country was founded on the basis of meritocracy. And then this self-healing nature of our, of our society as a society of we, the people, because of the, the checks and balances we have in our Constitution that requires consensus to be reached. That's the biggest risk I see in where we are today. I mean, just take this, this student loan gift that uh, Biden decided to unilaterally give. Um, you know, A, it's clearly an attempt to just buy votes for this fall. But it also it just smacks in the face of the American people when immediately after him doing this, he has his lawyers out giving giving uh, speeches and discussion that, well, <clears throat> we, we believe it is it is OK for him to do this. And oh, by the way, we don't think anybody will have standing to challenge it. So what they're saying is yeah. that just like when the president stood up uh, a couple of weeks ago in Massachusetts and said you know, about energy policy, he said, well, the Supreme Court turned me down and Congress isn't doing it. So I'm just going to do it myself. That's yeah. how th this this uh, regime uh, believes its yeah. power uh, exists, that they can just do it. The American people this fall, I'm very concerned that Republicans, conservatives are not going to get out and vote in the numbers that will send the message that this is unacceptable, because frankly, they're going to destroy yeah. the country if we have yeah. much more of this in the future. You know what? You, you are so right, David. And this is my fear, too, that these people need to be punished. I mean, punished in terms of losing their jobs. And it's this is a critical midterm election because what what Nancy Pelosi and Chucky Schumer and Joe Biden have done to our country, Monica, and as you just said, in 18 months is breathtaking. And so my question for you, Monica, is why? Where are the sensible Democrats? Uh, are they a donut? party that doesn't have a middle anymore? Or is it just a left-wing party? Because you would think that there would be a lot of Democrats saying, whoa, <laughs> we're doing something horrible to our country with this $4 trillion of spending and the massive increase in the debt. Why, why aren't we hearing from some of the Democrats just about objecting to this? If I go up past there, can I? Uh, was that for me, Steve? That's for you, Monica. Okay, thank okay, you. Well, you know, Steve, I'm sorry, I'm hearing, I'm hearing all kinds of voices. Um, 
Look, it's very clear that there are maybe a handful of centrist Democrats left in the Democratic Party, Um, not too many moderates left. And that's because of the last 20, 25 years or so, all of the energy and activism has been on the radical left left in the Democratic Party. And that includes uh, the activism on the part of the press. But it's certainly true throughout the party. And this is what I mean, that the Democratic Party is a neo-Marxist revolutionary party now. So even the handful of so-called centrist Democrats that might be left, they Mm -hmm. are – Their votes are constantly whipped either by Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. There is never any kind of straying from the official party line for fear of being disciplined by their party leadership. So every once in a while, you might get a Joe Manchin or a Kristen Sinema that might express concerns about X, Y, and Z. But in the end, as we just saw with Manchin and Sinema, they end up voting that way. They they are completely in lockstep. And again, this is part of a much bigger operation mm-hmm. by by these leftist despots. I mean, what David is saying is exactly true. We are sliding very fast toward a left-wing despotism if we're not already there. And the fact yeah. that these left-wing radicals have infiltrated every American institution and taken it over, I mean, the idea that, that the leftist radical takeover of the three yeah. most fearsome agencies in the U.S. government, the FBI, DOJ, and IRS, yeah. that that leftist takeover is now almost fully complete. That should scare every American into going into the polls in November and beyond. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have to take a quick break. That's Monica Crowley, who you all know from Fox News. Uh, we also have John Fun from National Review and David Sokol, who's the author of a great new book called American Perspective. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, – this whole issue of whether Republicans will turn out to turn out those Democrats who've done so much damage to our country. This is uh, the Larry Kudlow show on Red Apple Media. Hello, folks. This is Steve Moore, economist with the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. By the way, check out our hotline that comes out five mornings a week. It's free. Just go to the Committee to Unleash Prosperity website. That's Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and we will send it to you for free. I'm not selling you anything, but you should get it if you want to be the smartest person in the room and know what's going on with politics and the economy. Speaking of which, we have three incredible guests. David Sokol, who is the uh, author of America in Perspective, a great new book on what's happening to our great country. Monica Crowley from Fox uh, News, and of course, John Fund from National Review. John Fund, um, the Republicans didn't do too well in some of these New York elections. Should be, should we be worried about November? I think in some states, yes. I think if you look at the pattern of all the special elections that have taken place since the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. they've all taken place in affluent, highly college-educated right. um, white communities. And yep. in there, there has been uh, a more or less decline in republic in i'm sorry a boost in democratic turnout uh in the rural parts areas uh, the non-affluent areas uh actually republican turnout went up i think that what you're dealing with if you were in new jersey or in connecticut or new york i might be worried worried in most of the other states monica what do you think Well, look, I don't think we can take anything for granted, as we saw in 2020. And John just laid out before the break, you know, the Democrats are more than willing, ready and able to rig the system to try to get their candidates across the finish line. You know, I worked with President Nixon during the last years of his life, 
And we often talked about the 1960 presidential election, which was Nixon versus JFK. JFK won that election in large part because the old man Kennedy rigged the election for him in three states. So Mm -hmm. my point being that the Democrats have elevated election fraud and these kinds of machinations for decades into an art and a science. So I don't think we can take anything for granted. I think John is right that, you know, there are certain races that the left tries to turn into bellwether elections like these ones in New Jersey and, and New York, but they're really not. But that doesn't mean that we can't let our guard down. I mean, we do take a yeah. look at at the wins, the prevailing political wins, and it does look very favorable uh, for mm-hmm. Republicans to certainly take the House. Senate might be a, a dicier proposition, but we we need all hands on deck out there in terms of election inter- integrity. Volunteer your services to be an election observer. If you're an attorney, volunteer your services. If there are legal challenges as we head into this election and then afterwards, do yeah. whatever you can in your own community to make sure that these yes. elections are safe and secure. And then, of course, you know, we've got to fight for every single vote. Every vote. You know, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and we had a, our county executive primary uh, that was held, I think it was two weeks ago. They still haven't determined the winner. It's within 30 votes, 30 votes out of, I think, more than a million casts. So, folks, your vote counts <laughs> if it's if it's actually counted. And so uh, I think you make a great point that we've got to get people out energized because we cannot allow them to do this for two or four more years to our country. David, that brings me to you. You're the business expert. I was looking at some of these uh, polls like by National Federation of Independent Business on small businesses, and they're just not feeling the love. They're not feeling good about things right now in terms of where our economy is headed. Why do you think it's why do you think that's the case? Do we still have David? If we lost him, maybe I'll turn to John Fun for that. You know, we, why do you think uh, small businesses are feeling so anxious right now, John? Well, small business prizes stability. They want to know what the future is, whether or not they're right. going to get a small business loan, what the interest rate will be, uh, how much customers are nervous about uh, purchasing uh, items or services. And what do we have? We have a Federal Reserve that is uh, clearly forcing interest rates up. We have higher mortgage rates. We have a stock market that gyrates and was down a thousand points yep. on Friday. If you were a small business person, your confidence level would be about where it is now, which is about 50, where it should be about 80. Yeah. What do you think, David? Yes. Yeah, Steve, I think I think when you add to that this insane lack of, of true energy policy and what that's ah. doing to, to costs for small businesses, and people haven't seen anything yet. I mean, if you look at what natural gas prices are, are at today and oh. what they're looking at to be this winter, yep. um, you know, you're talking about a doubling and tripling. And, you know, look in the U.K. I mean, here's a simple example, yep. and, and energy is the lifeblood of business. In the U.K. in April raised their electric rates 54%. They just off Jim, the regulator in the UK just announced yesterday that they expect an 80 percent further increase this oh, yes. fall. And you know, uh, Monica, uh, it was a great point, David. Sorry to cut you off. We're just uh, coming to the end here. But I think, Monica, this energy issue, David is so right. This is an issue where I cannot believe how much Joe Biden has screwed up our energy policy. And David's also right that we're looking at people paying double or even triple their utility costs this fall and winter in terms of home heating and electric power because Joe Biden has essentially declared war 
on American energy, whereas the president you and I work for, Donald Trump, basically wanted to make America energy dominant. Yeah, and he, Donald Trump actually got the United he States did it. <laughs> to energy <laughs> right. independence for the first time right. in, our, in our history. It was an extraordinary achievement. He gets no right. credit for that, as usual. Um, look, everybody needs to understand, you know, Steve, you mentioned the additional costs this fall and winter to heat your home. That's on top of the raging inflation that we already are experiencing in right. every other sector. But energy is built into everything we consume and use in this country. So, of course, prices are sky high. But everybody needs to understand that the reason the Biden administration and the left continue to attack energy is not so much about climate change or the environment, although they might have some top line concerns about about that. The real mission here is to fundamentally transform the U.S. economy yes. away from economic freedom and toward this more collectivist Marxist kind of model. The energy sector is the biggest lever available to them in order to effectuate that. So that's why they continue to have it under attack mm -hmm. under the guise of Oh, green energy, and we're concerned about uh, the birds and, and clean water. Well, we're all concerned about that, but there are ways of doing it that's not just a fundamental re-engineering of the entire U.S. economy. But that's what their, their eyes are on that prize, and that's what all of this is about. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And by the way, the three biggest winners from this, folks, uh, and pay close attention because I call these countries the new axis of evil, uh, China. Russia and Iran. They're the big winners from Biden's incredibly incompetent um, energy policy. We've got about a minute and a half left, John Fon. You are from California. California is abolishing cars. California claims that it will <laughs> end the sales of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. <laughs> Steve, you and I both know, I think your audience knows, this is not going to happen. This is virtue signaling at a statewide 40 million population level. Uh, Washington State just joined them this morning. Uh, it's not <laughs> going to happen. It's not going to happen. I don't know, John. I, these people no, are no, so the, crazy. The minerals, no, no, no. <laughs> the, min, the minerals and the and the battery components that they need, which are almost all manufactured overseas, are not going to be sufficient to drive the demand for electric cars, even if yeah. they play King Canute, the commanding the waves to recede. It will be rolled back. It will not happen. But it's going to, there's going to be a lot of pain and wasted money along the way. Well, Monica, I'll let you have the last word here. But these people are so crazy. Maybe they just don't want people in cars. Well, that's exactly right. They want to restrict your mobility. They want you staying <laughs> right. in one place. No cars, no air travel. Again, this is all part of the great reset to keep everybody under their jacket. All right. Well Thank you, Monica. That's Monica Crowley from Fox News, John Fun from National Review, and David Sokol get his new book, American Perspective. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on WABC. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.